I want to welcome you to First Wednesdays. Uh, First Wednesdays is our monthly gathering that ironically happens on the first Wednesday of every month. It just happens to work out that way every every month. Uh, We come here every month to talk about uh, topics of faith and culture. We take a topic from within the culture and we look at it through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the beautiful and robust biblical story. And so uh, we're here tonight to talk about justice. Other weeks, uh, other months, we've talked about things like art, uh, sports, immigration, the value of work. But tonight is going to be about justice, and it's going to be a little bit different tonight. There may be some heavy moments, some weighty moments. uh, And what we want to say is that uh, tonight we're not going to comprehensively cover the topic of justice. But what we are going to do is we're going to give you snapshots, uh, little moments where you can take in what the biblical call to justice is and some different perspectives on how we could approach it. We're going to have some uh, speakers tonight. We're going to have three speakers who are going to take 10 minutes each and and cover a specific topic. Ricardo Stewart, who's the lead pastor here at Tempe, he's going to cover the topic of the biblical call to justice. Uh, Christy Hickel. Uh, who's a Ph.D. candidate and extremely intelligent, part of our congregation here. She's going to talk about sex trafficking. And Tyler Johnson, who is the the lead pastor of the lead pastors within uh, our multi-congregational church of Redemption uh, Church, and he is going to talk about uh, white privilege. We're also going to have, they're going to have 10 minutes each, and we're also going to have some poetry so that we can engage not just... uh, not just the, the uh, linear parts of our mind, but we can also uh, creatively let these truths seep in. We're going to have a few moments of quiet and silent prayer and reflection. Uh, we're going to have a panel, like we do every first Wednesday, where you can text in questions, any questions you have about the topic of justice. And on that panel, we're actually going to have um, the, everyone who spoke, plus a guy named Nick Armstrong, who's a friend of mine who spent 23 years in Indonesia um, as a senior consultant uh, working on issues of peace, justice, and community development. So I'm looking forward uh, to what we have uh, going on tonight. Uh, The one other thing that I want to uh, remind you of is the food. We always pray before we eat. But today we're going to pray with a little bit more reverence and um, weight. Because the hands that prepared the food are, are from people who, uh, within uh, just months ago, were living in Syria and had to flee Syria because of the painful things that were going on there. So even we want to engage not just our ears, not just our eyes, but our taste buds with this issue of justice and uh, our just God and the biblical call to justice. So I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll... Um, We'll get started with some of the discussions for tonight. Father, we thank you. We thank you uh, for everyone in this room and for the different things that they have going on in their life. We, we rejoice together in the, in, in, in with those who are rejoicing, and we weep with those who weep. God, we pray that tonight we would feel a real sense of, of your perspective on justice and that we would feel um, 
that we would feel called and into the particular areas that you, you want to send us into. We pray for those who prepared our food, for those hands. We pray that those hands from people from Syria would be joined together one day with their loved ones back in Syria and that you would let justice roll in Syria, that you would let healing roll down in Syria. And so we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, to, to start off our discussion tonight, uh, I want you to turn to, to some people around you and just ask this question. What is a definition of justice? Try to work out a definition of justice. And in a few moments, Ricardo will come up, and he'll be our first speaker for the night. All right. You guys can conclude your conversations relatively quick because they've only given me nine minutes or ten minutes. I'm going to move this mic out of the way. Hey, real quick before I get started, don't start the clock yet because I haven't started yet. Um, <laughs> is first, parents, there, I'm, I may use some language in here that may not be appropriate for your children. And then I know that when Christy talks, she's probably going to talk, and I know she's going to talk about S-E-X. And so... Um, just letting you know for, your, for the sake of the, the children and, and uh, whatnot. Um, so I'm going to teach from my phone. Actually, not my phone. Quick short story is uh, I forgot my notes, and they were on my phone, and my phone only had 4%, so Benjamin let me use his phone. But uh, we can get going. This will be my clock. Start now. <laughs> All right. So just a, just, a, just a quick story to start off with. Um, my first experience of what I would call blatant, blatant racism happened when I was a young boy. We were in Louisiana, and in the South, as in other places in the country, you pump your gas, and then you go inside, and then you pay, which only happens in the South, I guess. And um, when my mom pumped the gas, we went inside to pay, and every white customer, the, the person at the cash register would you know, kind of point them forward, they would pay, point them forward, they'd pay. And my mom held my hands and said, just sit here. We sat there for over an hour before they let us pay their money, the mo our money for them. We could have just left. My mom said, sit here. And then driving away, my mom's saying, you know what? Some people are just like that. That's just the way that it is. Uh, fast forward a few years later, I was playing basketball on a basketball court um, at the high school, excuse me, the elementary school that I went to when I was playing against a kid of the ca Caucasian persuasion. And uh, we were playing basketball, and uh, uh, needless to say, I beat him. And then in this one-on-one, <laughs> -on -one, he drops the word nigger, Right? And as immediately we can laugh or we can go to a point like that and immediately go, whoa. Because every one of us, no matter what race or what ethnicity you come from, you go, that ought not to be. And I remember talking to my mom about that, and she said again, that's how some people are. We happen to live in a world uh, where we are used to hearing people saying, that's just the way it is, or that's just the way some people are. But thank goodness there are, not, there, are, there are men and women in our country, in our world, who would stand up against injustice and say, that may be the way that it is, reality, but that's not the way it ought to be. If justice, if truth is what is, as Ken Winsman said, then justice is what ought to be. Justice is what ought to be. And so um, when we get into this conversation of talking about uh, biblical justice, um, we have to start first. To me, I start with Martin Luther King Jr., and his day in looking at the oppression of African Americans in our country, he looked to the law and said, wait a minute, you said some things to this particular culture that you're not actually following up with. And here's what he says. America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked 
insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. This was a part of his I Have a Dream speech. Martin Luther King Jr. did not just think this up from some TV show that he watched. This just didn't come from a book that he read in college, but this came from the book in which many of us believe in in this room, and the Bible, that he knew that the word justice and the ideal of justice and of living just as justly people was something that was replete in the Bible. It's sad that many of us as Christians, especially Bible-believing Christians, we see justice as something that, that, that super-Christians do. I mean, you believe in the gospel and you trust in grace and then you go on to something else and maybe you can do justice or live for justice. But when we read in the Bible, we see that justice is everywhere. And so again, here, here's a quote from Ken Winsman that I think will carry the rest of our night. This is what he says about justice. He says, justice is rooted in the character of God. Established in the creation of God, mandated in the commands of God, present in the kingdom of God, motivated by the love of God, affirmed in the teaching of Jesus, reflected in the example of Jesus, and carried on today by all who were moved and led by the Spirit. And so as we look in an overview from 10,000 feet above looking at biblical justice, first and foremost, it starts with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We love talking about a God of love and a God of mercy and a God who is gracious, but what we see in our Bible before God even created, that God in his attributes, in his his character, in his essence, that he's just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So for God to be just is for him to be God. So we start with God. And then out of an overflow of that just love, God creates this world. And in creation, God creates at the apex of his creation Humanity, you and I, people, Imago Dei, that's just a phrase that means we're created in the image of God and the likeness of our maker and the one who loves us. That means if our God is a God who is just in his essence, then we create in his image that we should care for one another, that there should be harmony and flourishing and equity and fairness within people. But as many of us know, when Adam ate that fruit and his wife ate that fruit, that the poisonous releasing of evil and injustice and sin began to pervade our entire world. And our problem is, is that we so often look at sin as something that is only moral, and we don't see that sin in itself can also be systemic. Meaning there are certain sins that you and I can repent of, and there are certain things that we cannot. Example, Jim Crow laws in our country. Uh, one, Af- one African-American or one white American can repent of racism, but that will not change unless laws are changed. There are some sins that are so deep that it's going to take more than just individual repentance, but laws to be changed, mainly sought out by the people who understand a just God creating his image, understanding that this world is broken, and it's not just morality that's broken, but it's pervasive. Sin affects everything. And what we see in the scriptures post the fall, that God begins a plan of redemption and his people that he creates, that he he calls in the name of Abraham, this people of the Israelites, that they were supposed to be the bearer of who God is to the world around them. And yet they found themselves, since they were oppressed, that they began to oppress others. And you hear the prophets speaking about justice, that they speak about how the world ought to be. One of the more famous passages that we know of, is Jeremiah chapter 29. 
And if you've been around redemption for some time, you've heard about that. And that's Jeremiah speaking to the exiles who find themselves in a foreign land, a land where they themselves are being oppressed. And God says, you're not going to leave there, but while you're there, seek the peace of the city, meaning seek the shalom. Build houses there. Plant gardens there. Get, let your kids get married there. As you seek its peace, you will find your peace. God says, shalom, the way things ought to be. Look at the character of God, how we were made, what God is doing. In the midst of a broken world, the prophets begin to speak. And another famous passage that we may or may not know is Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8 says that we are, he says, whenever you read in the scripture and it says anything about this is what the God requires of you, you should probably lean into it. And what Micah 6, 6 8 says is that we are supposed to, uh, we're supposed to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. All the laws in the Old Testament, and then God just says, okay, here, here's what I want you to do. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Seek the peace of the city in which I placed you. Though that call, that mandate that God called from the prophets is still a call and a mandate that we have to care for those around us. But when we as Christians, many of us evangelical Christians, just reduce sin to something that is moral, we won't see that it's systemic and we'll miss out on things. For instance, think about Sodom and Gomorrah. So often the way that we've taught that is that Sodom and Gomorrah, it went down only because of moral sins. They were no more um, immoral in Sodom and Gomorrah than we are here in Tempe. That they were no more immoral there than we are today. They were more, no more hypocrites than we are today. But when Ezekiel begins to talk about it, he doesn't mention the sins of sexual morality. In fact, this is what Ezekiel 12 says here. 1649 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had, a, had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. Meaning they didn't care for the poor. They didn't care for it. When you look at the Bible, you see that there's over 2,000 verses that mention justice, and just around 1,100 that mention love. And then you look at that, there's about 700 verses that talk about prayer. That means there's three times as many that talk about money, which we know is at the very root of injustice. And so when we fast forward to the life of Christ, after his people, the Israel people, could not do what he's called them to do, we see in Jesus' life embodying the kingdom. He says, repent and believe. The kingdom is at hand, meaning there's a new reign of God that is here, meaning the love of God is here that moves him to motivate God so loved the world that he gave his son, not only that we may have eternal life, but that the life of our king would be here. His characteristics, his love, his, ju- his justice, his mercy would reign through his people. Let me conclude with this. Our problem is when we think about justice, we think of criminal justice, and we say, let's go find the bad guys, bring them in and punish them. But we see on the cross is Jesus is the only innocent one And he comes not to bring the bad people, all of us, as the Bible says, to punish us, but in his cross and his resurrection to free us that we may, with all of his people, led by the Spirit, carry out his mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus and demonstrate it with our hands and our feet. So we hear like Jesus, we see like Jesus, we do like Jesus. If we are the feet of Jesus, we go to the places that he would go. Amen? Now, here's what we want you guys to do for just a moment. Um, Pray and reflect. 
And so someone around your table just lead out in some prayer um, and then reflect upon um, maybe biblical justice in your own life, in our city, in our community. And I'm in just a moment. We'll continue. These days, we live in the in-between, the already and the not yet. These days of government shutdowns overshadowed by season finales, these broken days of bad, bad becoming the new normal, while God never changes. These days of doing more with less, reaping harvests of unrestrained excess, tying hypertax burdens around the necks of unnamed generations, but God is the great provider. These days of foreclosed homes, broken families, forgotten promises of future faithfulness, fracture foundations once felt invincible. And God is the good father. These days of famine, unclean drinking water, Fukushima, scorching summers, fracking, deforestization, recycle everything, no, no, wait, it's not worth it. Car carbon footprints, is that green, organic, soy-based, gluten-free, free-ranged, and yet God is our sustainer. We live in these days, raise children in these days, these dark days, these days of brokenness, of abuse, neglect, addiction, exploitation, manipulation. Children turn fantasies. Adults turn outlets of desire or rage. Victims and perpetrators. Victims turn perpetrators and God is our strong protector. We live in these days, dwell in these days, are shaped by these days, these days of Trayvon and Syria and school shootings and mass graves and Kardashians and war and civil war and war on drugs and war on poverty and war on twerking and cartel-controlled vacations and another celebrity overdoses and another politician scandal in Snowden and gun-toting teachers and athletes turned suspects and unknown fathers and unknown children and Craigslist scams and weapons under pillows and refugees and Obamacare and sexual abuse in the military and increasing suicide rates among veterans and stock market roller coasters. We live in these days of uncertainty and God is our savior. We live in these days of questioning, where is God? Where is the God who never changes? Where is God the great provider? Where is this good father God, this strong protector God? Where is God the sustainer in, in all of this? Where is the savior in the midst of our chaos? Where is God in these dark days? And what if in these dark days he asks us the same question, where are you? Where are you with the truth I have given? Where are you with the grace I have freely poured? Where are you with the joy that can ease the heavy burden, the hope that can heal, the powerful prayer that can move mountains and the hearts of men? Where are you with your time, time borrowed, time that must be stewarded well? Where are you when sin is misnamed, when widows weep and orphans mourn? Where are, mm, sorry, and orphans mourn? Where are you with your Facebook posts and online petitions and Friday nights and Sunday mornings? Where are you? Where is our trust in the Savior that not only pardons the sins we have committed, but also those sins committed against us? Where are you these days? Will you be redeemed by the Redeemer who has redeemed and is redeeming all things, even these days, who redeemed in the first days of our chaos and unfolded, unfolded his plan of redemption and will fully redeem? Will you 
will we hold on to the truth that these days, these days we barely and bravely endure, will be redeemed in those days, those days that we all long for. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you. Hello. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about sex trafficking today, and I'm excited about doing that because I think that it's a very relevant issue when we're talking about justice. It's not the only issue, but it's this sort of interesting problem that's kind of interwoven into all of these other pieces of injustice we see in our society. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, if you've lived in America for very long, um, that prostitution is the world's oldest profession. And people use that to sort of kind of as a cop-out, right, that it's going to happen. It's been happening forever. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about what sex trafficking looks like today. Today, sex trafficking is the second largest criminal enterprise in the world. Um, it may be the first, we don't really know, but what we do know is this, that gangs and organized crime groups and people who recognize that maybe selling drugs means for them that they sell a drug once and it's used and then it's disposed of. But when you sell a human, you can sell that person over and over and over again, at least for a couple years, till they lose their teeth, till they're addicted to drugs, um, till they're dead, till they're just done and they're tired. Um, so it's something that's a very lucrative business. Um, we don't know how much money is made through it. Uh, the low estimates say maybe $30 billion a year. But we know, um, we know about what's happening in America and we know what's happening online. Uh, Backpage.com, which is the uh, largest uh, online site that... Um, that allows people to sell uh, sex, and the largest internet-facilitated sex trafficking site makes $30 million a year in the top 10 markets. Um, and they're, they're throughout the world, and folks, that is not the only one. So sex trafficking is a really big problem. It, it touches everybody. The, my law enforcement um, friends would say um, that they could find a victim of trafficking within a mile of your house. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, that the victims that we see are affected by so many other injustices. They are affected by racial in inequality. They're affected by gender inequality. They're affected by socioeconomic um, difficulties. Uh, they're oftentimes experiencing deep poverty. If you think about um, a 15-year-old girl who is having trouble having the lights turned on in her house, who doesn't have enough food to eat, um, and someone says, if you work for me, if you come here, if you go to this party, if you do what I say, I'll give you a fake coach purse. Now, if you've had all your needs met, that doesn't, that doesn't sound so great, right? But if you don't, if they promise to keep your lights on at home, if they promise to feed your sister, you're probably going to say yes because that's not a real choice, right? You make the decision for survival. Um, we know that this kind of victimization is um, particularly heinous because um, unlike some other crimes where the perpetrators are, um, are regularly just that, uh, they, are, they are the victimizers, they are the only ones hurting you, um, Sex trafficking victims regularly interact with people who could rescue them but choose not to. Um, these are Johns, and we say we call Johns those customers of um, people who buy sex or purchase sex. Uh, these Johns come into the hotel room. They see she's got a black eye. They see that she's a little dirty, right? Someone is not paying for her to get her laundry done. Um, she looks a little bit scared. She looks drugged, and they say, you know what? This is worth the, the 200 bucks of, of, of my cash. This is worth my time. Most of the time, they're not out to buy children. That's a whole different thing. Um, but what we know is that they, they walk into this and they say, this is what I'm going to do today. And they go for it, no matter what it looks like. There was a horrendous case in Phoenix a number of years ago um, where a girl was kept in a dog crate. Now, it's sort of been taken out of context because people think that happens all the time, and it doesn't. Um, but the fact of the matter is that there were men who repeatedly walked into that room, 
saw that she was dirty and drugged, and decided to pay to have sex with her anyways. In Phoenix, a, a study that I was part of recently, um, we estimated through fancy numbers I still don't really understand, except for I know that they're right, um, is that there are about 78,000 men a day who solicit sex online in this, the Phoenix area. Um, we are not the biggest market, but we have a problem here. Um, and Phoenix is, to borrow my some law enforcement uh, friends' terms, we are the perfect storm because we have some transportation corridors um, that make it easy to, to move people along anonymously. Um, and then we are the second largest resort community in the country, which is strange because when it's July, I don't think I would want to be here. Why would you want to come? But you know what? When it comes to be February and it's pretty nice and there are lots of business conferences coming into town and you head to North Scottsdale and you see it, that's real. So we have a real problem here. Um, and I think that it's relevant to justice not because even because it's so horrendous and difficult, because it's not this black and white issue. Everyone wants to think that sex trafficking is a black and white issue, that there are victims over here, and that they are sad and scared and tearful, and every video you see is someone with like mascara stains down their face, literally. Google it, that's what you will see. Um, and that's real, but what's also real is that these are tough kids, that these are adult women and men. I run a group right now at a, a homeless drop-in center, and when we started it, we thought, you know what, a bunch of girls will show up, we'll see what happens. 80% boys. Some of them are gay, some of them are straight, but what we do know is that when you're on the run and you're an adolescent, you gotta find a way to, to meet those ends, right? You gotta find a way to get a place to stay, to get a meal. You're gonna do what you need to do to survive. This is, this is what the reality is, that it's dirty and it's messy, but it's a wonderful example of how Christians can be involved in perpetuating justice, um, in fighting for justice. Um, and I wanna just briefly give a couple of examples of how I've seen this done really well um, and, and not so well. I'll start with the not so well first because I, I guess that's a nicer thing to do. Um, I've seen a group of college students, um, well-meaning college students, come to the, uh, the vice lieutenant and say, we, uh, we care about sex trafficking. We want to train all the law enforcement. And he was like, thank you. I didn't, I've been doing this for 18 years. I did not know that I needed to be trained by you. Um, and then they said, I think we want to be there for, for every rescue of a victim. And they said, okay, well, what skills do you have? What training do you have? Do you, what do you know about this? Nothing, but you, but you care about it. And what I see them doing, which is very common in this issue because it's so sexy and salacious and strange and outrageous, and people use terms like slavery, right? And, and we're going to, we as Christians especially, like to use language like saving and rescuing. Um, and, and we get involved in this because it's like, it's like the rubbernecking on the freeway, right? This is the latest car crash that we're going to sort of just look as it goes by. We want to be at the front of the line. We want to see it first. We want to see the blood and the guts and the gore and be able to tell other people about it. And that's not real justice, right? Real justice is a church in Minneapolis who uh, heard about some work a researcher was doing. Um, and I'm not just biased because there's a researcher involved. There's other good stuff too. Um, but they knew, heard about this researcher who was doing ethnographic kind of, you know, on-the-ground work in her area. And she wanted to know what was going on and what was happening. And so um, she came and she met with the, with the researcher. Um, and the congregation said, what do you need? And she said, well, talk to the people. These women are in deep poverty. They are, by and large, this is a very young community. Um, they're sex trading to get their light bills met and their, fit, their kids fed. Uh, they need a drop-in center. They need a place to, to think and to shower and to wash their clothes and to, to figure out what they're going to do and maybe try to find something else. Because when your life is a circle of chaos, you don't have time to think. Um, and the church said, well, our building is right on the corner. There's lots of bus routes right next to it. We're a good place. We're going to give up our building, and you can have it. Not just on Tuesday nights or when it's free, but we're going to become a homeless church. We're going to find somewhere else to be, and this is your home. This is the drop-in center for you from here on out. 
And they said, we're going to figure out a way to help. We're not going to stand at the front and feel really good about ourselves. We're going to cook meals. Um, the, the stained glass windows make you feel judged. We're going to take them down. We'll put them somewhere else. Um, but this is what you need right now. And it was such a wonderful experience for me to hear this researcher talk about it because she's not a Christian. She said, you know what? This, what this church did wasn't charity because charity is about here, right? Charity is about people are, are below me. They are down here. And I am going to decide what they need. And then I'm going to give them what I think they need. But what they were doing was partnership, which is, I think, what real justice is about. Partnership is we are equals. We were born equals. We're going to die equals. No one's front, first in line here. Um, and you, as the person who is experiencing the injustice, get to partner with me and decide what it is that I need and what it is that you need. Um, charity is about, and oftentimes I think we can get into this place, about identifying um, this sort of other that we're going to help. When we say things like helping the needy, right? Needy is always below because I'm not needy, right? Needy is over here. And that's not real justice. That's, that's that charity. And I, there are other great, you know, definitions of charity, but I think you understand what I'm saying when I say that justice is not looking down and saying, I'm going to help you below me. I'm going to help you over here. I'm going to keep my hands clean and feel really good about it at the end of the day. Um, it is a, it is a, a getting dirty. It is a, it is a feeling really messy and difficult inside. It is a gut-wrenching experience, um, and it's wonderful. Um, look at that. I have a minute left. That never happens. Um, I want to just end with, um, with that situation. I want you to think a lot about how not so much sex trafficking, again, is this issue that maybe you can become involved with personally, but when you think about um, the real tragedy that exists just around the corner from you, again, in your neighborhood, down the street, people that are, that are today um, enslaved by, as the, the federal definition of trafficking, um, through forced fraud or coercion, um, they're being sold by a third party or they're being coerced into this, um, that, that's, that exists and that we cannot be a part of the system that lets that happen. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes just to pray and reflect then. Throughout my life, I've walked this bridge. In this bridge, I have mixed feelings about, to be honest. There's times where I love crossing, other times I question why it's there, wishing I didn't care. And see, now it feels longer, and through the years it's become stronger with new perspectives, new thoughts, new experiences, new stories, each one building off the other. Positive and negative, explaining my mixed heritage, this bridge I walk on is between the angry minority and the coconut, between the representing and the still not knowing, between the freedom and oppression, between the burden and the learning lessons. It's been a struggle. Walking this bridge, others try to define as I'm trying to wrap my head around what's mine, my own ethnic, ethnic identity when multiracial is molded into this broad category where really there's a deeper story behind the what are you's and the what do you like better, as if half of me is the former and the other the latter, and yet I walk and begin to struggle. And as I walk and begin to struggle, I hear this soft, strong whisper in my ear reminding me why I'm here, as my ethnicity is a gift from God, not a burden to carry, though at times I do get wary, I, rem I am reminded it's a gift. That's needed to be used wisely, not done so blindly. This bridge I walk, I walk with pride, for it's in the Lord unto which I abide.
My name is Tyler Johnson, and I am the lead pastor of Redemption Church. I'm going to talk uh, tonight about white privilege. I was born a coach's son, and many times my father would come home with a new bat, or he's a baseball coach, a new bat, a new glove, uh, to which I would just take in. It was kind of expected. My father was a coach until he'd sit me down and say, hey, you need to understand something. Not every kid gets an opportunity to get free gloves. They don't all get to talk to the Wilson rep and the Rawlings rep and be handed a glove and new batting gloves and new bats. This is a privilege of being a coach's son. I learned about privileges, and then as I went through life, and I had many friends because of athletics that were of different ethnicities, I began to realize that there were other types of privileges. And the longer I lived in life, I realized that there were privileges that came from being in a dominant culture. And I was pretty much in all the dominant cultures. I was in the dominant culture of wealth. I was wealthier than the majority of the world. I was in a dominant culture of being a male, and I was in a dominant culture of that being a white male. I was walking with my friend one day at a McDonald's and realized very quickly that I didn't experience things that he experienced when the word nigger was yelled out of a window, and I realized I'm never going to walk down the street and have somebody yell out of the window, hey, whitey. It's not going to happen to me. And that got my mind racing about the advantages I held just because I was born to a family whose skin was white. There's been a definition of white privilege proposed that says this. The white privilege is a right. It's an advantage or an immunity granted to or enjoyed by white persons beyond the common advantage of all others, an exemption in many particular cases from certain burdens or liabilities. An exemption in many particular cases from certain burdens or liabilities. This developed in me, and through some readings, things that I began to understand that I can count on that minorities in this room and elsewhere cannot. I can count on the fact that when I do this, I won't be accused of being an angry white guy. I'm certain of that. I know and I can count on the fact that I can be here tonight with my two boys without my wife and not have most people presume that I'm a single father. Or I know that my wife can go out with our two daughters and people not presume that she's a single mother because the husband abandoned her. Oh, that's typical. I know that I can walk down the street and not have many people worry that I might be illegal or I might be a terrorist. I can count on that fact. The majority of people don't think that or that I am fundamentally a thug. I can count on the fact that whether I use checks, credit cards, or cash... I can count on the fact that my skin color will not work against the appearance of my financial reliability. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. I can avoid spending time with people whom I was trained to mistrust and who have learned to mistrust my kind or me. Let me say that again. I can avoid spending time with people whom I was trained to mistrust and who have learned to mistrust my kind. 
I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I won't be followed or harassed. When I'm told about my national heritage or about civilization, I'm shown that people of my color made it what it is. I can count on that. I can speak in public to a powerful group of males without putting my race on trial. I'm never asked to speak for all the people of my race. I can be pretty sure that if I ask to talk to a person in charge, I'll be facing a person of my race. If a traffic cop pulls me over, if the IRS audits my tax return, I can be sure I haven't been singled out because of my race. I can easily buy posters, postcards, picture books, greeting cards, dolls, toys, children's magazines that will be featuring people of my race. I can be late to a meeting without having that lateness reflect upon my race. I can expect figurative language and imagery and all of the arts to testify to the experiences of my race. Those are just some of the things which I could go on and on that I am certain that I can count of. But what does the Bible say about this? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, and I want many of us in the dominant culture and that are white in this room to hear this. For what makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Many people in the dominant culture are like king of the hill. You know, we sit at the top of the hill and go, look at everybody below us and go, oh, well, let's just all get along. Just stay down there and relax. Like, just relax while we stand at the top of the hill. Not realizing that somebody got us there, something got us there. Boasting as though we did not receive the privileges that we have solely and completely by the grace of God. To whom much is given, much is expected. Those who are faithful in little will be made faithful in much. I want to end with this story that will come on the screen. who's half black, half white, but looks white. Blue eyes, whiter than most white folks, very white. Uh, she and I, you know, we kind of grew up together. We raised our children together. Uh, so they're first cousins, and we, you know, it's a wonderful, very, very multicultural family. So we're going in a safe way one day. And um, Kathleen, my, my sister-in-law, is in front of me, and she's, uh, you know, writing a check for her groceries. Now, my daughter, who at the time was 10 years old, was standing with me, and I was directly behind her, you know, getting ready to get my groceries. So Kathleen comes up, and the checker, who is a strawberry blonde, um, freckled, very delightful, warm, um, you know, the checker, this young woman, is talking to Kathleen. Hey, how you doing? This is a nice day today. They're just chatting up. And she says, yes. Yeah. So Kathy writes her, her check, and she steps off to the side with her groceries because she's waiting for me. Of course, again, Kathleen looks white, right? So I come up. No conversation. She looks up at me. Absolutely no, just a little chatter. And uh, I write my check. My daughter, however, is 10, notices immediately the difference in how she responds to me. So I write my check, and she goes, I'm going to need two pieces of ID. At which point my daughter looks at me, and she gets very, very embarrassed, and tears are, are, are kind of coming up in her eye like, Mommy, you're not going to... You're not going to let her do this. Why is she doing this to us, right? So I'm trying to 
figure out what I should do because behind me are two elderly white women, right? And I'm thinking, okay, so then I become the angry black woman, right? And they're going to be, and I just, I'm, I'm just trying to second guess all the drama. So then I, I just give her the two pieces of ID. I said, you know, some things you got to choose your battles, right? And then it gets worse. She pulls out the bad check book, right? So the, this is the book that shows the people who have written bad checks. So she starts searching for my license in the bad checks, at which point it's just out of control now. Just as I'm standing there um, trying to decide what to do, and it's really deeply humiliating. Now my, my daughter's in full-blown emotionally upset, who's 10. My sister-in-law walks back over. And she steps in and she says, excuse me, why are you doing this? And the checker goes, well, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? She goes, why are you taking her through all of these changes? Why are you doing that? She goes, well, um, this is our policy. She goes, no, it's not your policy because you didn't do that with me. Oh, well, I know you, you've been. She goes, no, no, she's been here for years. I've only lived here for three months. And so at this point, the two white elderly ladies go, oh, I can't believe what this checker has done with this woman. It is totally unacceptable. At which point, the manager walks over. So the manager walks over and says, is there a problem here? And then my sister-in-law again responds. She goes, yes, there is a problem here. Here is what happened. So you see, she used her white privilege. And even though Kathleen is half black and half white, she recognizes what that means. And she made the statement. She pointed out the injustice. And she, as a result of that one act, influenced everyone in that space. But what would have happened? I can't know for certain had the black woman said, this is unfair, why are you doing this to me? Would it have had the same impact? But Kathleen knew that she walked through the world differently than I did. And she used her white privilege to educate and make right a situation that was wrong. That's what you can do every single day. All right, let's turn at our tables. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that there's multiple types of privilege. I'd love for you guys to talk at your table about how you think you're privileged. And as Dr. DeGroy said there right there, how you can use that privilege for the benefit of others. So let's turn the tables and have a conversation. Let's, uh, let's uh, bring our conversations to a close here. And now we're going to move into uh, our panel. Um, Every first Wednesday, we like to do a panel so that you can ask the questions that are on your mind. Uh, the way we do this is through text message. And you'll see up on the screen here how you can go ahead and text in your questions. Basically, you text the word all of life. Uh, it's one word, all caps, uh, followed by your question to that number that is on the screen. As you may know, I'm the guy who always comes up here and who has really bad vision and ask questions, so we'll be able to make fun of me a little bit tonight. That's okay. Um, be, feel free to ask any question that you want as it pertains to justice. So you can talk about uh, aspects of what's coming out of Scripture. You can talk about any of the topics that were brought up here, or if there are other topics uh, that, you, that you have on your mind relating to justice. We're not giving dating advice tonight, but relating to justice, go ahead and text those in. Uh, so I want to go ahead and get started. Um, you've seen three of the people here on this panel as speakers, but Nick, um, Nick Armstrong, he was a late addition to the panel. As a matter of fact, this morning at breakfast, I invited him on, on the panel. And Nick is a guy that I've known for a few years, and I have tremendous amount of respect for him. 
and I thought it would be important for him to be here because he brings an international perspective to this conversation. He's a guy who's uh, lived and worked in Indonesia for 23 years, uh, focusing on issues of justice, peace, and community development. And so, Nick, would you just go ahead and um, uh, tell, tell us, uh, take one or two minutes to just tell us about yourself and uh, what your work has looked like in Indonesia. Okay, thank you. Thanks uh, for letting me be part of this. This has been a fantastic evening. Uh, I have been in Indonesia for 23 years working with an organization called World Renew, formerly uh, CRWRC, or Christian Reform World Relief Committee. And uh, my primary job has really been uh, to do with community development and disaster response. I was involved uh, with uh, tsunami in Aceh and that sort of thing. But as we've worked with a network of churches, we've really found that peace and justice issues uh, were so essential and became part of, of the work as of about 12 years ago and a real focus of ours. And so uh, in the last five years, I've had a real focus in uh, a place uh, in South Sumatra, if you're in, if familiar with Indonesia, where there has been uh, a, a, a case of land grabbing and land grabbing is a global issue. It's an issue that has to do with injustice, uh, taking uh, the land of indigenous people, poor peasant farmers, and taking that land and uh, essentially uh, giving it or uh, allocating it to uh, palm oil companies and the like. Okay, great. Uh, Nick, I just wanted to, to start with a question to you. Uh, we have a lot of people who are in here who deeply care about issues in the world. Uh, but sometimes there's a little bit of cause fatigue. Uh, there's so many things to care about. Uh, but you have been someone who has stuck it out for 23 years in a particular place. Uh, as someone who's sort of weathered the storms a little bit, can you speak to what it takes to endure and persevere in serving a particular people in a particular issue over a long period of time? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I just read a book called uh, uh, The World is Not Ours to Save. I may, maybe many of you have read that, but um, that book, I think, really gives some good biblical foundations for this whole uh, struggle as we enter into the mess of injustice in the world. Uh, indeed, cause fatigue is very much one of the pitfalls, and uh, one of the things I, I, admittedly, I have fallen into as well. There have been times I felt very discouraged and, and felt like, uh, you know, th there is no way to uh, overcome these big, huge, very uh, messy problems. Um, but the fact is, is that we have hope on the horizon. We have hope uh, in the midst of uh, a kind of landscape of damage and brokenness. And... Uh, that we, we have to have our hope in Christ if we're going to, uh, if we're going to continue walking forward uh, in the brokenness in the midst and uh, being able to essentially uh, bring about a little bit of shalom uh, before we actually, it, it culminates in Christ's return. Great. That's, thank you, Nick. Why don't we go ahead and put a question on the screen and then we'll go to the questions there. All right. Um, the, the question is, the question is, Jesus says to love your enemies 
And, but what if those enemies have committed horrible acts of injustice? So in other words, how do we love and take justice seriously? Tyler, we're going to have you take a shot at that one. Um, well, I would start by saying I thank God that he did that first because we are stated as being enemies of God in the Bible and committing horrible acts of injustice against God and our neighbor. And he loved us so much that he took that injustice and sin upon himself to liberate us and free us. And then we're freed to do uh, the same thing. So, But I would also say that love is not giving your enemies or your, your neighbor even, for that matter, everything they want, um, but it's looking at it what they need. So love is honesty and it's compassion. Um, you know, things have been established that are called like tough love of an opportunity to tell somebody the truth about a situation. It isn't a loving thing to allow those people to live in perpetual sin themselves, um, even if that's them being horrifically selfish and or evil. The most loving thing I could do is to help liberate that person. But um, them doing radical acts of injustice against you is not an out to not love them. All right, next question. What's the difference between white guilt and white privilege? Let's have you take it. Me? Yeah. Oh. Uh, From my experience. Here, here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Ricardo's been asking me all week to, to talk on white privilege, so here's your chance. Uh, uh, Try to shorten Guilt never changes anything and never does anything. When you see someone and you feel sorry for someone or you feel guilty and you move towards guilt, it's never changed, it's never sustained, it's never lasting. It's really about you, and it's very selfish. Uh, the difference between guilt and white privilege is I would say that guilt basically makes it very um, inward about you and about trying to remove something because maybe something you've done or maybe your ancestors have done and there's just a guilt, and it's, it re it's received by uh, those who are not a part of the, the white ethnicity is just kind of like, just don't even do it. I'd rather for you not even to do it. Whereas that understanding white privilege is just understanding that verse that Tyler read there in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 is going, have I worked really hard for this and some of the things? Yeah, but I've worked hard with what was placed before me. Ray Bakke talks about that, the, that there's that, that phrase that says, you know, you can teach a man, uh, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach him the fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And then he says, well, what if the pond in certain neighborhoods are infested? And he's basically just saying, like, that phrase works for you because your pawn works. Ours doesn't. And so when understanding that when you have privilege, you're just thankful for it and its power. One of the things I didn't get a chance to say is that injustice is basically a misuse of power. And we don't really understand as Christians a lot of what the word power really means, but it's resources, it's talents, it's God-given things, and how we can steward that to love God and to serve and love our neighbor. And so a misuse of that becomes injustice. And so the inverse of that is basically saying, what are these privileges that I have? And how can I serve those who may or may not have these privileges, as Christy said, that we are now co-equals, image bearers of God, to get them in a position where they can be in? That doesn't necessarily mean fairness, sameness, but it does mean equality. So it's led from conviction about serving others, not guilt of getting this off of me. Yeah, I'd say it's important to recognize the terms, too. So guilt is a feeling, right? And it may be justified or unjustified, 
privilege or an advantage is a fact. It's a reality. And that's what white privilege is trying to say is recognize you are at an advantage. That's just the facts. Now, you shouldn't feel guilty that you're advantaged. And that isn't the point. To bring up white privilege is not saying, man, feel guilty. Everybody, when you bring that up, white people are like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's just recognizing the reality, like I did as a coach's kid. Man, I'm getting some things that other people don't get. That's just the facts. And until we recognize that, it's virtually then impossible to, to steward that power for good if you don't even recognize you have it. All right, next question. The question is, what are some of the lesser known ways we knowingly or unknowingly support sex trafficking? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I've thought about that a lot recently um, with the VMAs and everyone talking about how terrible and ridiculous Miley Cyrus is and everyone writing blogs about how everyone should teach their daughter not to be like her. Um, and at the same time, very little attention being paid to Robin Thicke, who is singing a song that perpetuates rape culture, um, that talks about coercion in a way that makes it okay. <clears throat> I have a cold. Um, so, so we... <clears throat> Sorry, that's super gross. <laughs> so we end up doing this, and we don't sort of even recognize it. In fact, I didn't think about it very much. I didn't really care about Miley Cyrus, um, but I didn't think about it much until I, I, I read someone writing about that and saying, wait a minute, when we don't, we don't sort of say, we don't hold people to the same standards, when we don't have a conversation with our sons about how unfair it is that we have a whole litany of terms to describe promiscuous girls, but we don't have anything negative to say about promiscuous boys. We call them pimps, players, ladies, men, right? None of those are negative. No boy doesn't want to be called that. Um, so, so we unknowingly kind of participate in that sense. Um, and I think that that's probably the best example. Um, why is it we end? Yeah. Next question. Is affirmative action a just policy in society today? Here's, to answer that in a sufficient one-minute time frame is impossible. Um, here's what I'd say. You don't, taking, I'll start with, with this part. Taking something and giving, um, I'm trying to figure out how to say this, but basically you don't want to take the dignity away from people that are made in the image of God. Okay, so if at any point somebody is getting a job solely based upon their race, is that's, I think that's dehumanizing, I think that's undignified, I think that's wrong. That said, what Ricardo said about Ray Baki is essential to realize. The playing field is not neutral. The only people that think it's neutral are the people that are in a dominant culture position that have the capacity to be blind to the fact that there are advantages fundamentally built into the system. Okay, so I'm, I'm upholding two facts there. I, I think affirmative action can be massively dehumanizing and in the end not empowering to people. And yet at the same time, there is a reality of what affirmative action was trying to develop is to acknowledge the fact that this is not just a neutral playing ground. Here's the tension you live in when you make this statement, okay? When you make a statement on this, the tension you live in 
is that you can develop an entitlement by acknowledging the fact that the, the playing field is not level, okay? It isn't. And, and we would need much more history to just flesh that out. Not a lot of it, but we could flesh that out. The problem in doing that is in the end, you can make people into victims, which is dehumanizing. So regardless, if you're in this room and you're a minority, regardless of the situations, regardless of whatever changes, God's made you in the image of God and you have capacity to apply gifts in such a way that you can do the best with that which you have, which may not be what I don't, I may not even do my best and end up in the world's eyes higher than what you are, but you have a responsibility to take upon yourself what you have and develop yourself in the midst of it. So don't ever take the fact that the playing field is not level and say, that's my reason to say I never got out of it. That's the value of a Bill Cosby in the African-American community, but the value of something else is the realistic recognition that we do live in a world of injustice. That's the facts. So... Um, speaking about dehumanizing, I wanted to ask Nick a question. Um, there are many of us here who f- want to do stuff, and rightly so. The Bible calls us to pursue justice, but there are ways that we can pursue justice that are helpful and ways that are hurtful, and you've seen that over the years. Can you speak to what some of the more helpful ways are and some of the hurtful ways? Um, yeah. Uh, I would really say that um, the helpful ways are for, uh, for us to work with community. Hmm. Uh, the ways to hurt a community is to work for that community. Uh, we're, we're never uh, someone that can change the community. We're never someone that can walk into a community and make it what we think it should be. And if we have that idea, uh, then we're off base because it's not our community. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, we, we really have to love in the sense that we enter in w- in an incarnational sense and uh, begin to understand uh, things in a, in a deeper sense by working with the community. So I, I would say, I mean, that's a general answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can give you more specific uh, examples as it worked itself out in uh, the more moral village that we worked with, with the land grabbing issues and that sort of thing, but yeah, that, I'd say that's the overall arching principle involved. That's great. appreciate that. Let's throw another question up on the screen. What should the Christian perspective be in capital punishment? Rick? You want me to take that one? Look at that. The moderator just got it flipped on him. I would say that there are many that there are, that you can have different perspectives on capital punishment. It is a good debate to have, but I think the place from which we are having that debate often isn't honoring to Christ. Um, one thing I'll, I'll throw out there as a question is: This is a life issue, and if you are pro-life then just be consistently pro-life. And our posture, our, our, our bent towards this issue should be toward uh, life. Toward, to, should be toward restorative justice as much as possible, which restores people, which restores relationship, not solely retributive justice, which is just about punishment. 
Um, I don't know if I fully would do away with uh, capital punishment, and, but it sit, doesn't sit well with me. I'll say, I'll say that much. And it doesn't sit well with me because I'm a pro-life guy. And the other thing I would say is, over the years, there have been several, there's been a lot of evidence that innocent people have been put to death. And by and large, those innocent people, who later evidence comes out and proves that they're innocent, uh, by and large, those people are minorities. And so again, it's a, it's a justice issue of innocent people potentially getting, uh, they're losing their life, and an issue of people not getting uh, represented well and getting justice in the courtroom. So I'm not going to give you a straight answer, is it right or wrong, but I would say be consistently pro-life and lean, lean in towards life. All right, go ahead. Just to, just to I mean, I'm dead on with where, where Jim is at, is when I was talking about one of the things is our limiting understanding on justice. Um, most of us have a very narrow view on justice, not to say most of you, most of us do, and it usually comes down to uh, um, uh, criminal justice, kind of what I mentioned. And criminal justice is bad people have done bad things. So what we do is go find those bad people and punish those bad people. And I think that when we think about biblical justice, we've got to realize there's more than just that. There's more than just justice being that. So what happens is we take that view of justice and we read our scriptures and we see the word justice, we're thinking of only that. Therefore, God becomes a God who's only thinking about punishing people. Not to say that he doesn't punish sin, but that's only what it is as, a, as, a, as opposed to caring for what Jim said, from the womb to the tomb. Um, most Christians, especially in our state, are conservative politically and would be so for the protecting of a life. And I think that what Jim just said, it's just a consistent totality of going, let's, let's, let's look at that more broadly as well as we think of this. And it's far more of a posture in which we come from and just then, instead of just saying, what is the church's stance? The church should first have a posture of understanding that care for people, again, from the womb to the tomb. Great. Next question. Preferably an easier one. Um, how can Christians in Arizona engage the topic of injustice committed against Native Americans? Any, any takers on that? All right. Christy. This makes me a teeny bit nervous, um, but I'm going to speak from my place as a social worker in saying um, that uh, anytime there's an injustice that, is, that has been perpetuated in a very close proximity, we have both the, the ability, just because they're geographically there, um, to to engage and to, to kind of promote justice um, and that I would kind of, if, again, from a place of a social worker, rely on what um, was just said about going to the community and seeing what needs were are, are, are present. Um, that we can't come in and say, um, gee, you, you look like you have this and this and this problem in your community. Um, and so we need to come in and we need to fix that. Um, Oh, I noticed when I was first a social worker, a case manager, that we would have Native American um, young mothers come, and the agency would say, you need to get away from your community um, because uh, it's not good for you there. And we believe in individualism because that's our, our society, and so we're going to bring you to this place in the middle of Phoenix, and you're going to do well there because you're going to follow our rules. And what wasn't consistently not being understood was that uh, when you grow up in, in a more collectivistic environment, uh, your ideas about family and connection to culture are very different, and it was very disrespectful 
to say that the only way you can succeed is if you succeed in our environment and by our, our rules. So I think coming to a community and saying, um, what is it that you need, um, that the injustices that have been perpetuated against you are not decades and decades behind us. They are relatively recent, um, and you're still feeling the effects of that, and you should because they were recent. Um, but what, what do you need? How can we meet those needs? Um, I will just say one thing. As redemption, I'll speak for redemption leadership. <clears throat> Pray like crazy about this issue because this is an incredibly forgotten people, unbelievably forgotten people, and they are all around us in our state. And almost, I'm so thankful somebody asked this question, almost never talked about, even when it comes to these issues. And I'll say too, um, just this is one of those important things that before we even move towards action, sometimes before doing, we need to feel a little bit. And this is something I think we need to mourn. We need to lament. It's a biblical term of deeply feeling the emotions of this injustice. And so I would encourage you to look into some of the history and those things. Even as you drive down, take a drive down Indian School Road and let that be a moment of uh, prayer and lament. Uh, as you think about the history of what's happened in this state. Let's go ahead and go for another question. What are some practical ways for us to get involved with bringing justice to sex trafficking in Phoenix? Um, all right, I have uh, some great ideas for you. Um, first, there's going to be um, an interfaith summit that's going to actually happen here um, at this campus on November 8th. Um, it's in the middle of a day or like a morning to evening on Friday, so you'd have to take off work or if you're interested, um, come. Uh, so that's one option. Um, I have some flyers for a, a, an annual walk that we do to remember uh, people who have died in the life of uh, prostitution or sex trafficking. We walk in a kind of shady area because we try to walk in an area that actually has street prostitution, but it's a lot of fun. Um, so I have a couple of flyers. Um, and uh, <laughs> there are also a number of organizations in the city of Phoenix and surrounding areas you can get involved with. Catholic Charities has been around for a long time. They have a Dignity House um, Mama's House is another facility. Um, Streetlight USA is for minors. Uh, I, there's some other organizations um, that I'm that I'm familiar with, but those are the three that um, I I know well and would really support. Um, and then you can get educated on the laws. We have a serious law problem. No laws for sex trafficking have changed in six years. That means that if you can, if you buy a 15 or, or excuse me, a 16 or 17 year old in our state. Um, then, and you say that you thought she was over the age of 18, you get off a lot easier. That's a problem because that person's still a child, right? So become educated and, and, and maybe advocate in that manner is another way that is really, really important. That's good. Uh, Nick, I was going to have you ask the, answer the same question, but for global poverty, so practical ways that people can get involved uh, with addressing the issue of poverty. You might be able to grab that one there. Am I on? Yep. Uh, I guess it would depend on uh, you know, which people we're talking about. If it's, if it's uh, the U people in the United States, uh, I would say uh, one of the big things is, is to contemplate and really struggle with just the whole consumption pattern that we get involved in. Um, you know, that's, again, not to invoke guilt because that's not what we're about. We're, we're uh, disciples of Christ following Christ in joy, not in guilt. But the idea of really considering how those consumption patterns contribute to injustice in the world, because 
the fact is, is that we're all uh, culprits in a, in a system that can perpetuate injustice. And uh, as part of being part of that system, we need to think in ways in which we contribute to the injustices of that system, whether it has to be uh, to do with uh, ecosystems or has to do with people getting their land taken away or uh, things with regard to uh, politics and social inclusion, whether people are, are actually included in a society or excluded and that sort of thing. So um, I'd say, you know, just immediately thinking of this context is, is yeah, how those consumption patterns could be changed in ways that bring about greater shalom. That's great. Uh, one way I want to just kind of close the, the panel time is just very quickly, if we could go down the panel, starting with Rick, uh, Ricardo. Um, one book recommendation that you'd have. So it'll get tougher as we get down the line. Knock yeah, good. I'm glad I get to go. <laughs> the Bible, Jim. No, <laughs> good choice. Uh, Pursuing Justice by Ken Winsma. I can't spell his last name. I used a quote from him. Is it Weinsma? It's Weinsma. <laughs> but it's not spelled. There it is. All right. It's Weitzma. He's Weitzma, all right? <laughs> And he's from Bend, Oregon, and everyone there is white smile. <laughs> but this book, Pursuing Justice, honestly, it's, <laughs> it's a really good book. Sorry. I, I would second that huge vote for that book. Go ahead, Nick. Okay. The book I, I had just mentioned, um, The World is Not Ours to Save, uh, I would say is a very good book, especially for this group here. I think of people who want to be active in the world and want to do something. To, to read that book really gives some good foundations to not get uh, to fall into that cause fatigue that you mentioned, Jim. So uh, that's by Tyler Wig Stevenson. Great. I do. That's fine. Um, first, uh, the book by Rachel Lloyd called um, Girls Like Us. If you're interested in sex trafficking, um, she's a sort of a star in our field, um, both a survivor and an important advocate. It's a good book. Um, and then second, um, There Are No Children Here. I think his name is Alex Kotlowitz. It's a great sort of staple in the social work curriculum, but it um, speaks to lots of injustice issues. Since she used two books, I'll just tell you about a four-page article. Um, but just on my topic, there's a, a Peggy McIntosh in 1988 um, began a big part of this conversation with an article con called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack that's regarding white privilege. Uh, I do not think she's a Christian, but it is a, a great place to just start and sit with a four-page article and really reflect on it. That's great. And I would say that there's a book called Biblical Ethics and Social Change. I believe the name of the author is Stephen Moffat. Is that right? Mott. Mott. Okay, shorten that, Mott. Uh, in that book, I would encourage for those who are who really like to read and who want to kind of go deeper and maybe have read a few books about justice. Uh, we're going to close tonight. We're going to close with one very practical thing you can do. I have in my hands a bag of fruit and vegetables. Uh, these, th this produce here was grown by uh, farmers from Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, Bhutan, who have come from just very painful situations to Arizona as refugees. And the IRC has done an incredible job of, of helping them get connected with farmland where they grow organic produce. 
And so something very simple you could do is get involved with the, the, the CSA, stands for Community Supported Agriculture, that we have going on here at Redemption Tempe. And basically the idea is you pay $25 a week, you get a big bag of produce, which is worth more than $25 a week, and it helps support the refugee farmers that live here in the city. Every Wednesday night it's at about 6.30 to 8, we're doing pickups here. And so you can come talk to me about that if you want to get involved with that. Um, also, I believe Jessica, who works for the IRC, is in that breakout room. You have to go around to get, get to it. Oh, there she is. She's waving her hand. Um, so if you want to talk to her about it, you might even be able to see some of the bags and see some of the, the food. I'll bring mine over there. But that is a really tangible way because unless you're like Jason Raber, who's one of our other pastors here, you got to eat your fruits and veggies each week. And so this is a, a good way to do it. I'm going to go ahead and close us in prayer, and then we're done for the night. Father, thank you. Um, thank you that we are able to have this night and have this discussion and have a, a meaningful discussion because it is rooted in your character, in your will, and in your future destiny for where you're taking this world that one day you'll make all things right. And in the meantime, I pray that you would give us wisdom about how to pursue and to do justice, how to love and to treasure kindness and to walk humbly with you. We thank you that you are the one who justifies us and is the greatest advocate of justice we know. In Jesus' name, amen.